Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. With Istanbul in chaos, Paul and his friends race against time to try and stop the end of human existence itself in episode 3 of Uniform. I scrambled up the street with Riza at my side and route to my apartment. I knew there was no place to run. I was going to have to get back to the lab. Just the same, I figured I'd need a few things before returning there, though. Hysterical screams lacerated the air around me, arguing too, and occasionally I'd grow dizzy, almost teetering through the panicked wails and determined car horns. My phone. When I picked up, all I could hear was Korean ranting on the other end. Kyung. Thank God. It took me a second to decipher what he was going on about, though. I thought it was a shoelace, but the real reason he was ticked was because he'd been trying to call me the last half hour. I forgot I'd reprogrammed his cell phone numbers, too. <laughs> God help me. He'd come to the same conclusion I had, and was now headed back for the shoelace thing, too, to destroy it, if he could. Kyung, where are you? Outside the lab building. Kyung, wait for me. There's no time, Bumskull. Things are bad enough already. Tell me about it. How you feeling? Hey, I'm no sissy boy. Well, you're no Superman either, Dingo Breath. How are you feeling? I'm fine. I gotta be. I stuck my wife and kids in a cab. Don't know how far they'll get. You know what? The stupid driver tried to get me to fork over the money before my wife even climbed into the taxi. First, they act like- Young, another time, please. Now, stay on the phone. By the time reason I had climbed the winding, rickety stairs to my second floor flat, Kyung had reached the lab's main floor back at our office. Keep talking, Kyung. What do you see? It's still dark in here. At least I got my flashlight, though. And a backup. Jesus Christ, it stinks in here. And the floorboards. Polly, they're really weird. Almost like, it, like they're inflated. The whole thing's warped. And slippery, too. I'm heading back to lap C now. A long pause ensued. I heard the faint pad of his steps coupled with a strange groan from the boards with each footfall. Riza started pestering me to give her the phone so she could hear, and when I waved her off, she practically tried to drag it from me, the little banshee. It all played out pretty weird in my head, what with the kinescope effect, the sound delays, and my own thoughts increasingly bent out of shape. Terrified that I'd lose Chung, I plopped the cell in the phone's receiver bay and switched on the speakerphone so Reese and I could both hear. Kyung cursed a little on the other end. He was apparently kicking his way through things, flipping errant light switches, all of them dead. It prompted tiny, more feverish complaints from him, and then I heard him groan suddenly. What is it? 
What is it? Just my tongue. Hurts like a cuss. And it's hard to breathe now. My head's killing me too. Like somebody's digging up my ears. Ugh. Are you okay, Kyung? Kyung? I'm in the lab now. Holy moly. What is it, Kyung? Kyung! Kyung, damn it, speak, would ya? Half the ceiling's gone. Fallen in. Or it's bowed downwards anyway. And you know that shoelace? I found it, but... But what, Kyung? Well, it doesn't look like any shoelace anymore. It's changed again? Yeah. Strange. What's it look like? Like some weird old ring. The ends have joined. It's about a foot across. I can't even tell where the two ends came together. The glow from it is brighter now, too. Brighter than my flashlight, even. Hold on a second. Ow! Fudge! What is it? I just tried to pick the damn thing up. It's razor thin, man. Slippery as hell. Stupid thing just sliced off the end of my finger. Son of a pup! <gasps> Kyung, I think there's some tools in the first aid desk. Might be able to use some of them on the shoelace. Or maybe some of the acids from the storage cabinet. We still have some, don't we? Frankly, even though I was suggesting these things, I wasn't sure what the acids had become already thanks to the shoelace. Just the same, I'd hoped Kyung had had more of a plan than this before going in. He already sounded lost. Polly. Polly. I'm not feeling so good. I gotta sit down. I think the air's going bad. Kyung, get out of there. Get out of there now. I can't breathe too well. And the pain's worse now. My ears hurt. And my tongue aches. And my nose. Hey, how about that? I think it's bleeding. Gosh. I never had a bloody nose before. Wow. I think my mouth's bleeding too. God damn it, Kyung. Leave the building. Huh? Kyung, listen, listen to me. Listen. Leave the building. What the? What is it? Polly, there's something else here too. Something weird. What? What do you see? Something's in the middle of the room. In the middle of the room? Yeah. About the lap desk. I'm gonna pull a chair over and climb up for a better view. Holy moly. That weird thing? Polly, it's like a little point of light just hovering in the air. Like a firefly. Well, don't touch it. It's making a weird sound. Can you hear it? I listened. A high-pitched whistle started coming through. Yeah, what do you think it's... Oh, God. Kyung, are you alright? Can you hear me?
Kyung? Kyung, are you okay? Kyung! Kyung, get out of there! <coughs> it's... it's a line now. Just hanging there. In the air. Like the shoelace. Kyung? Kyung! Kyung, get out of there! Get out of there! The second blast was even louder than the first. The tremor from it hit us seconds later. When it passed, a horrific tone, almost subsonic, literally shook the receiver in its cradle. I was out the door seconds later, running for the lab, Riza screaming at me, something about gas masks. The Turks had been hoarding them, fearing Iraqi nerve gas in retaliation for an American strike. Riza, no surprise, had access to a stash. Even then, who knew how long a mask would last in all this? Or if it would even be working by the time I got to the lab? Still, I figured it was better than going in empty-handed. How long my body could withstand the changes, I had no idea. The only thing I could think of was to destroy the shoelace somehow, if not with some of the machinery or tools at the office, then with something I'd seen about a block away from our lab building, a Turkish foundry. If I could get it there, who knows, maybe I could maybe melt the damn thing down or damage it enough to incapacitate it and stop all this. Of course, if it had survived the Big Bang, chances were slim I could do anything to it. Just the same, it was the only idea I could dredge up at the moment however feeble. But perhaps in the shoelace's changed form, maybe, maybe, it might somehow prove more vulnerable. Riza and I found the stockpile of gas masks at the back of one of the myriad carpet shops in town. I plucked one mask from the pile, gave it the once-over, then strapped it over my shoulder while Riza set out to filch cell phones from the men in the shop. Even panicked, when they found out who Riza was, or who her family was anyway, they fell all over themselves. I kid you not, suddenly 200 cell phones appeared from nowhere, piled high in a huge cooking vat they rolled at us. Three phones went in my back trousers, another in my shirt pocket as Riza scratched down their numbers. I placed a fourth in her hand, punching it on a first to make sure it worked. I pulled her face toward mine and stared into her eyes. Look at me, Riza. If the cell phones die and you don't hear from me in 15 minutes, get out of here, however you can. I know you can do it. You've got the connections. Paul? Just listen. Get to Ankara, hop a flight, get as far away as possible. On the other side of the world if need be. You understand me? You don't look back, okay? Tell your parents and your friends to do the same. But... Just do it, sweetie. I kissed her on the lips goodbye, but couldn't get up the street without a breathtaking hug from her. When it broke off, I just looked down at the curb. There was no way I was going to look into those emerald eyes since I couldn't promise her anything. Then I said to hell with it and grabbed her and gave her such a kiss as I'd never done. When it was over, I put my hand to her cheek, then turned and jogged off over the cobblestone street without another word, the gas mask strapped to my side, slapping against me with every step. I hadn't gotten a block and a half when one of the phones rang. It was Riza. She gabbed at me all the way till I reached the lab's five-floor stairway and then the lab itself, where I finally had to tell her to pipe down and keep calm. Inside the lab, it was black as space. 
except for a weird glow coming from Lab C in the back, where Kyung had gone. Flashlight in hand, I navigated the furniture, stepping over plaster and shattered coffee mugs, tumbled filing cabinets and overturned chairs. My shoes kept slipping on the ballooning floorboards. The rotten banana odor had me gagging, and I shut down all olfactory input, breathing through my mouth instead. Even then, each staccatoed breath proved more painful than the last. I considered the gas mask, but decided to wait till it was absolutely necessary, if my senses were still operational by that time. Ahead of me, a nauseating buzzing, like power transformers in the rain, but tenfold nastier electrified the hallway's heavy air. I crossed the doorframe to Lab C to find a blast of furniture and shattered equipment, the room's contents blown to the four walls. A bright line, some four feet tall, like an electric eel hovering in the air, glowed and crackled. Its grating hum rattled the jettisoned furniture in a gruesome chorus that sent more objects vibrating back across the floor. At least I couldn't smell that horrid banana-like odor anymore. Just metal. My nose had started bleeding too. Amidst the floorboards, I found Kyung's lifeless body, bent badly about one of the throne desks. I sidestepped the crackling white line carefully, what little hair I had left these days tingling on end, each strand on alert, as if aware of some danger I couldn't begin to fathom. I crouched down beside Kyung and looked him over. Parts of his skin had turned a ghastly gray, blackening blood striping his polo shirt. His lucky Panama hat was gone, except for one tattered bit of rim embedded in his hair. I pulled my gas mask around, thinking to put it on Kyung, and noticed its hose was no more, the last little bits of it crumbling in my hands. I blinked hard. Sighing, I reached in and gently pulled one of Kyung's crushed hands from the wreckage, searching for any pulse. Nothing. I kept at it a good thirty seconds, pressing, swearing, trying another area, and pressing again as tears welled inside me. Kyung. Kyung, Jesus. My eyes had turned a bit soggy before a fleeting, fading thump of life made itself known, its dismal patter heartening my own for the moment. Or at least... My heart had risen until I sensed something move behind me. Out of the infinitesimal thinness of that floating line, as if emerging from the flap of a tent, the tip of a javelin-like leg angled outward, its casing a shimmering silver. It dabbed at the floor daintily, then rooted itself, a thousand veins spilling from its end like capillaries, to grip the surface. A second leg appeared immediately after, followed by a flood of mercurial tendrils, seven in all, that flitted in every direction like steel tongues, extending and retracting, tasting and touching objects in the room. A moment later, the thing emerged in its entirety, a platter-like body at its middle supported by a quartet of multi-hinged legs, the tendrils extending below it. It was completely alien to anything I could have imagined, 
not of our universe, not of the stuff we were made of, beyond our dimensional ideals, beyond everything we knew. The silvery, pear-shaped head that rose from the disk was surrounded by glassy cylinders, perhaps eyes or light receptors, that rolled about the rim of the platter, sometimes spinning and rotating on their axes like a carnival teacup ride, giving the creature several 360-degree views without ever tilting its head. Altogether, the thing reminded me of a Turkish tea set, like the silver of the sultans, complete with its own table. Question was, would its beauty match a similar civility? I froze, watching the thing survey the lab, even as my own gut burned with pain. The creature was joined a moment later by another of its kind, emerging from the slit, and then a third, each of them nearly three meters tall. The trio carefully took in the room, prodding and poking at the floor, the walls, the tangle of equipment. As they did, their bodies occasionally emitted light, their casings shimmering like prisms, often even dispatching waves of glowing sparks into the air about them that faded and disappeared as soon as the spark touched something. All in all, it was a glorious vision, as lovely as any sunset. Sometimes the pulses and colors and sparks were rhythmic and stunning, almost divine. The warm hues shifting subtly as both color and sparks beat out long strings of staccatoed patterns, their way of communicating perhaps. Other times, the sparks and colors seemed liquid almost, slower than light had a right to be, as if their speed was determined by their wavelength, perhaps something else that had been altered thanks to the shoelace. Most likely, if the shoelace had come from an earlier age, an earlier universe, it had come from a realm of physical laws distinct from our own. That special balance within nature, all those magical constants that had arisen here, seemingly with the roll of a dice, the boiling point of water, the gravitational constant, particle charges, molecular bond energy, would have been determined by a different roll there, perhaps even different dice. And that was why the shoelace had been sent through. It was meant to do what I had done for myself and our office all these months in Istanbul as I changed the conditions of my surroundings, made life livable for me, more like home. Whether through air conditioning, the comforts of Western media, or the mouth-watering pleasures of a simple steak. After all, scientists had long ago dreamed of conditioning Mars and other worlds so humans could thrive upon them. The shoelace had just taken it a step further, the only step it could take, not only seeking to essentially terraform our environment as we had thought to do to other worlds, but remold our entire universe at its most fundamental level, so that the life which had arisen from some time and space before ours might cross over and continue its existence. Perhaps this race had realized its own universe was dying, Perhaps even the very idea of death was alien to them, and so they desperately designed to bridge that gap, to come out on the other side of the big crunch, to survive even when God and nature had deemed their term limit at an end. I knew man would have been no different in his thinking, but the idea nodded my morality. If I destroyed the shoelace, I'd be destroying another people, crushing a cosmic arc, thereby ending all life in that realm and everything the previous tenants had ever striven for, 
perhaps the very same things we ourselves had struggled for all these millennia. This was no invasion per se. Who knew if they were even aware how much devastation the shoelace had already caused? To them, they were just trying to survive. Plus, who knew how much we ourselves owed them? If they had caused our universe to unfold this way, had molded it according to their own design, how much right did we have to inhabit it? We were like the mice in the floorboards. Who was really here first? And could we truly claim squatters' rights? It was all too much to contemplate. The only certainty in all of it was that if my ethics got the better of me and I let things be, our race, and probably every living creature on Earth, would melt away like the glass in my picture frames. The vibrating hum from the glowing line caused a toolbox-sized hunk of machinery to tumble onto the floor. It surprised the things, and they jerked back a bit, almost in shock. Two of them slowly ambled forward, then touched the dead machinery gingerly. No sooner had they done this than they turned on it with their whip-like tendrils. What commenced was so lightning-fast and brutal, and so relentless, that my heart stopped. The violence only served to upset more hapless equipment, which was met with the same thresher-like approach to diplomacy. I swallowed hard. They were more neurotic than mints. Even worse, they had the fire and fury of Riza, with the power of a panzer tank to back it up. I didn't stand a chance against them, and who knew how many more would be shortly parading about the room. At least they'd made it easy on my morals, though. If they couldn't play nice, no need to let them in the playroom at all. Instinctively, I began dragging myself behind a barricade of dead machinery, leaving Kyung where he lay. I hated myself. I couldn't leave him behind, but I couldn't drag him with me either. My strength was already failing me. My body, like my friends, was beginning to crumble, victim of the shoelaces revisionist physics. Every movement lashed at my senses now, every breath a pitchfork to my lungs, and I had no idea how long Kyung could hold on. I managed to put a good ten feet between the marauders and me without being noticed, mostly because the T-set's attack had been so blindingly vicious. Apparently in their world, the best defense was a murderous offense. Of course, no sooner had I secured myself behind a lab desk than one of the things grew curious about Kyung and stepped up to him. I held my breath. Two of its tendrils poked at his lifeless body, a third wrapping about his ankle, lifting a shoeless foot in the air. Its brothers crowded around, likely in prelude to another slicing and dicing. I started sweating and had begun busily formulating a really stupid rescue plan that probably would have gotten us both killed when one of my cell phones rang. Riza, cripes! She had the timing of a telemarketer. The tea sets turned into light brights instantly, two of them abandoning Kyung to seek out this new ringing terror that would doubtless have to be cowed through complete and utter annihilation, with me caught in the mix. I dug the phone from my shirt pocket and quickly tossed it under a tangle of equipment ten feet away. I ditched our other cellular finds as well, the last phone sliding toward the back corner, right past the shoelace, the bane of all our troubles. And as I suddenly realized, the answer to them too, the key to this whole mess. Chances were slim to none I could actually destroy it, but I might not need to. Perhaps a simple act of neighborly goodwill was all that was called for. 
if I could just get to the thing. Presently, it lay against the wreckage and wooden flooring, tilted slightly, a glowing, seamless hoop. With the tea set's mere feet from me, brutally foraging through the wreckage to answer Reza's call, I slowly reached my hand out and grabbed the shoelace. Major mistake. To briefly catalog exactly what happened next for anyone as stupid as me, I lost two fingertips, had a third finger cut practically to the bone, and managed to slice a sheaf of skin from my palm the size of a potato chip. I bit my lip, trying not to cry out. Kyung hadn't been kidding. The shoelace's latest makeover had rendered it altogether anorexic. For all I knew, it was completely frictionless now, leaving its razor-sharp, microns-thin form impossible to pick up. It would cut through anything, me most of all. All thoughts of pain left me, however, when the two T-sets unearthed my ringing cell phone and properly tenderized it. Scared the bejesus out of me, and not just because of the resulting mayhem, but because in the ensuing rock and roll some clutter from the wreckage nearly tumbled onto me. One item in particular, Kyung's old romance novel. I looked down and picked the thing up, marveling at why I hadn't thought of it before. Setting it aside, I quickly slipped off one of my shoes, leaving a bloody mess as I struggled to remove its shoelace. Then, carefully, I leaned toward the tea set's shoelace, this time with Kyung's book in hand. Given the novel's earlier transformation, and now almost indestructible makeup, it was, ironically, perhaps the only thing in the room that could take on their shoelace's rapiered attributes. I propped the book open and let the shoelace, its circular shape now some ten inches in diameter, slide in between the pages. Just as I did, my own cell phone went off. In tossing the others, I'd completely forgotten it. The tea sets turned, and seeing me lit up like Roman candles, instantly headed my way. I pushed over a stack of equipment, the machinery tumbling into their path as I dove behind the desk. I snapped up the bloody shoelace I'd left behind, the real one, wrapped it around the book and tied it tight, the two together, Kyung's book and my shoelace, securing the tea set's glowing ring and providing me with an apt handle for it. The tea sets viciously laid into my self-made barricade. I jumped to my feet, feeling vulnerable and dizzy as hell. The things saw me and saw their glowing ring in my hand. There was a moment's pause, as if they'd caught their breaths. Then they came at me quick. I doubt I had even a second. Ignoring the pain that gnawed at my every cell, I hurled the book and the glowing ring into the air, straight into their buzzing portal. The two objects disappeared into the glowing line, and the door the ring had created instantly shut. Right back at you, I said, and with a little something to read while you wait. The tea sets looked stunned, but they got over it quick enough. Murder on their minds. I dove back behind the dead equipment, squeezing through a hole under one of the desks as they tore into the machinery behind me. I crawled out the other side, out where the buzzing portal had once been, climbing over poor Kyung in the process. All I could think of was to get help before they got me. I tumbled over more wreckage and my body spilled into the hall. I slammed against the corridor wall, practically dislocating my shoulder, and tumbled to the floor a moment before picking myself up again. One of the tea sets, bigger than the others and quicker too, with the golden tinge to him, had been lagging behind, letting the smaller ones forage and destroy while he supervised. Unfortunately, it put him in a better position to deal with upstarts like me. A sinewy tendril lashed out and struck my arm, breaking it clean. Ah! But he couldn't get a good grip, wreckage barring him from a better shot. I got up and lurched numbly through the hall into the outer room, splashing through puddles of glass, tumbling over errant filing cabinets that lay between me and our office door. Golden Boy, undeterred, smashed through the corridor wall into the room. 
Debris hit me and took me down where I stood. I struggled up again, my lungs aching, my hands and clothes wet with glass. The lab's outer door was still open, and I stumbled toward it, but two golden tendrils hit me just as I cleared the frame, knocking me into the stairway banister and right over it. I grabbed the rail with the only good hand left me and ended up dangling there, five floors of stairwell below me, as Golden Boy closed in. True to form, with all seven tendrils lashing, he made his move, but just as he smashed through the doorframe, he hesitated slightly. I couldn't tell if it was mercy on his mind or some trepidation I couldn't begin to fathom. Then he came at me. In fact, he lurched forward, off balance, as if stumbling, and fell right over me, over the banister, and down into the space between the stairwell, smashing repeatedly against one side of the concrete stairwell, and then another, on his way to the bottom. Gravity did a better job on him than I ever could, and I stared down at the final aftermath, searching for any movement, any flutter of those tendrils. Nothing. My breath finally returned, just long enough to remember the other two chromium goons back in the lab with Kyung. I got a foot up on the stair edge nearest me and pulled myself in under the bar, onto the safety of the stairs, taking a moment to catch my breath. So where the hell were they? Waiting for their head honcho to return? I honed my ears, listening. Nothing but street noise outside, the office's silence proving unnerving. I finally got up the guts to peek past the door. Moonlight poured in from the empty windows, turning the office into an eerie checkerboard. I tiptoed inside, eyes alert to any movement, ears tuned to any sound. When I got to the hallway, I stopped. One of the creatures was lying on the floor, crumpled against the lab wall, silent. Through the hole in the main wall, I spied the tendril of the other, lying across the rubble, unmoving. Lights out. I looked down at the floor, near my shoeless foot. Amidst the clutter and debris was a shimmering puddle, now hard as glass. A few days later, on our way home from visiting Kyung in the hospital, Reza and I stopped in front of the Blue Mosque, its six minarets pointing the way to heaven. Sweetie, remind me to pay off a certain library fine tomorrow. Huh? Oh, just a lost book. Least I can do for Kyung. I paused and thought, scratching at the cast on my arm with my bandaged hand. Though I'd returned the shoelace to its rightful owners, I sorely doubted it had been one of a kind. Had it been us, marooned, facing our end, we would have created as many of the things as possible, dispatching them like messages in bottles, tossing them into the currents of space in the thousands of millions. If the T-sets had done the same, perhaps even now, somewhere out there, the laws of physics were being rewritten, 
that wave spreading from one corner of the cosmos to the next, making it only a matter of time before the two of us met again. I turned to see Riza staring at me, those bright green eyes of hers digging deep into me, obviously wondering what I was thinking. I didn't say anything. Instead, I just hugged her. Afterward, grabbing her hand and pulling her along behind me as I set off to reacquaint myself with her good friend Fikri and that lovely steak of his. So ends the final episode of the story Uniform. The cast for this podcast included Otto Fung as Kyung, Maggie Irvin as Riza, and in a performance that would have made George Bailey really truly wish he'd never been born, I, Michael McGee, played Paul. The music heard here came from artists like Rob Vandenberg, Naola Sparkus, whose tune you're listening to currently, called Phoenix, Lee Mattiford, and the wonderful William Zeitler who wrote and performed all the lovely glass harmonica pieces heard in this episode. You can find his music and his CDs at williamzeitler.com. That's Zeitler, Z-E-I-T-L-E-R. And it was the band Clouseau who wrote and performed the theme for the Theater of the Midnight Sun, called The Copper Locked Nymph. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. Most of the music was courtesy of websites such as the Podshow Podsafe Network, GarageBand, and Magnatune. Check back in one or two weeks or hit that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next story on the Theater of the Midnight Sun. This one a humorous tale about what happens when a society takes its fairy tales a little too seriously in a multi-part story called Goodbye Cruel World. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun.
until